Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So he wore his father's photo on his suit jacket. People started to come up and said, I remember your dad. The most exciting thing about being out to sea for me is all of the different evolutions and drills that we get to do when we're out on the water. Um, you know, those of us who have served on warships, you know, we have a hard time seeing them as pieces of steel. We believe they have souls. My favorite thing is going out at night, going out to the flight deck or the forecastle and seeing the sky open up. I'm Sarah Fenske. Since 1828, seven different U.S. Navy ships have sailed under the name USS St. Louis. Now a new documentary from 9PBS explores their history with a deep dive into the latest iteration. In fact, the film opens with footage of the new vessel gliding across open water. Let's listen. This is a littoral combat ship. It was designed to be fast, agile, and adaptable, and officially became part of the U.S. Navy in 2020, carrying a name that it shares with six other vessels, whose combined history reaches back almost as far as our country does. Under this name, ships tangled with pirates in the Caribbean, blocked slave trade off the coast of Africa, fought for the Union on the Mississippi, and escaped Pearl Harbor unscathed. Today, that name is still carried to the far reaches of the world by a ship designed to counter modern coastal threats operating in both the near shore and open ocean. Her name is the USS St. Louis. But it's not just the name of our city that she shares. It's a legacy to preserve and to carry on. The USS St. Louis Littoral Combat Ship 19 was commissioned just one year ago, and the storied legacy it's now a part of is the focus of USS St. Louis Centuries of Service that premieres Monday on 9PBS. It's part of a partnership with the Missouri Historical Society and the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum. And joining us now to talk about it is 9PBS producer Kara Vanninger. Uh, Kara, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And Kara is the producer and writer of the new film, USS St. Louis, Centuries of Service. Kara, there is such a long and wonderful history of ships with this name. Did you have any idea what you were getting into when you started work on this film? No, I didn't. And I was thrilled to see how far back the ships went because I'm a huge history buff myself. So, And this goes back to 1828. Um, this is the first USS, USS St. Louis. What did this sloop of war do? So it was instrumental in um, combating pirates in the Caribbean and various other places. That was still an issue even even in you know the uh, mid 
1800s, as well as blockading slave traders. So off the coast of Africa, it it had many different missions all over the world as far as New Zealand. And then, you know, it kind of ended its its illustrious career fighting a war at home during the Civil War. Okay, and it fought on the side of the Union Army. It did. It had helped with blockading on the seaside, and then the, the next ship um, helped on the on the Mississippi River. So, so that next ship, uh, this is the, the second USS St. Louis. Um, and this one was actually built in St. Louis. We have a clip here from your film. Um, Andrew Schleicher is an archivist with the Carondelet Historical Society. And here's what he said about the shipbuilding industry in St. Louis. The Civil War ironclads were actually built in Carondelet under the uh, Carondelet Marine Railway Company. It was the biggest shipyard in the area. The train tracks actually did go a little bit into the river. So what the locomotives would do is they would grab onto a ship that needed that came in for repairs from the river and just drag it up to the dry dock. It was founded in 1855 by a guy named Primus Emerson. He left St. Louis once the Civil War broke out to actually build ironclads for the Confederacy. But that let the door open for James Eads to come in and lease it. James Eads was considered an expert of navigating the river because he got his start salvaging ships that had run aground. Working with naval architect Samuel Pook, Eads began to produce ships with a shallow draft and tough exterior for the Union Army, starting with the ironclad St. Louis. And that is from the film USS St. Louis, Centuries of Service. So this is the second USS St. Louis. It's an ironclad ship. How did it assist in the Union effort? Well, there were mo- many battles fought on the on the rivers um, during the Civil War, and actually, the the St. Louis, the ironclad St. Louis, was operating under the Army's purview, and then they had to separate things. And because you cannot have two Navy ships named the same thing at the same time, since the sloop of war was already named St. Louis, when the ironclad St. Louis was designated to the Navy, they had to give it a new name. So uh, technically, the ironclad was never really a USS St. Louis, but good enough. It was it was eventually renamed for the Navy, the Baron de Kalb, So oh, Okay. So yeah. it had a couple different names in there, but this was, at, at some point, it's part of the same lineage. Yes. These two St. louis ships are both fighting in, in the Civil War here. Mm-hmm. This one, though, this second one, the ironclad one, had a pretty short life. Yes. How was it sunk? So... I believe it hit a mine. Yes, it hit a mine. I think it had only been operating about a year or so. So okay. it, it was pretty, um, the ironclads, that was a pretty brutal warfare. So um, it hit a mine and sunk and that was it. Yeah, the idea of fighting in the rivers. I mean, these rivers are not that wide. It's it's unimaginable to think of them firing on each other and, and missing. Right, right. And, and that was the other thing. There were forts along the river that would also fire. So even if the ships missed each other, then the forts might get you too, so. So this second uh, St. Louis, this was unlucky, but that this the the most famous of the USS St. Louis and St. Louis's, boy, there's a lot of S's in that word. <laughs> um, this was known as Lucky Lou. This was the most famous iteration. Um, happened in the middle of the 20th century. How did she get the name Lucky Lou? Well, many different times, but the most first and most most famously would be uh, at Pearl Harbor. 
Um, she was the only major battleship to escape uh, the harbor, uh, zero casualties. And, you know, there were some smaller vessels that got out, but it was during the attack. She she got her boilers up and she got out of there. And um, there is a little bit of um, an interesting sort of story about how many of the ships had been given. They had heard the kind of cue to if you can get out, get out. And so St. Louis, she took it seriously, and she got out of there. And um, I, I think she was also not a major target because she was a smaller ship. So that aided in her ability to escape. And escaping is important, but she also played a role in the combat here. She didn't just get out. She also fought back. Absolutely. She was ready with her guns, shot down, I believe it was three enemy aircraft, and um so it was a it was a pretty exciting story. I had no idea when I first started that a St. Louis had even been at Pearl Harbor, much less had such a exciting sort of chapter of it. Yeah, so she played this this good role there, managed to get out, and then went on to have just a series of adventures throughout the war. Can you give us just a few highlights? Absolutely. She was involved in Leyte Gulf, um, which was one of the biggest naval battles to um, in modern days to happen. She was just so instrumental in um, a lot of different major arenas in the war as well, and kind of escaped many different, you know, um, harrowing, I guess, you know, positions. Not that she didn't eventually suffer casualties, but she ended up with 11 battle stars by the end. So So she really earned that name, Lucky Lou. Absolutely, yes. So as you say there, um, this was not a history you were familiar with going into this film. A man named Michael Bukowskis ended up being a key source for you in this film. How did you get connected with him? Yes, well, I believe it was Diane Everman of the... um, the LCS-19, the the current USS St. Louis, she was the head of the commissioning committee, and she connected us, and I started talking to him just to kind of get a little bit of information on the Lucky Lou. He's actually the son of a veteran mm. of the Lucky Lou, and um, his, his father had passed away before they were able to really connect um, on the war and his war stories, and that was a, a real wound for him, and so he wanted to find out more about what his father went through because his father would never talk about the war. He had a, mm-hmm. a really hard um, job during it. And, you know, so he... What was he doing, this hard job? Well, he part of his job, he had many different duties, but was to uh, clean up the bodies. Mm. And so for him, that was not something he wanted to relive through storytelling with his family. And so, yeah, yeah. So Michael, you know, he decided to go to the dedication of the ship's wheel at um, our soldiers memorial. And he met all of these veterans and they invited him, you know, they find out who he was, invited him to a reunion. And he was just looking around thinking, maybe I can meet some of my father's friends, you know, get get a firsthand account of what he went through and, and maybe some good stories, too, you know. So he wore his father's photo on his suit jacket and walked around the reunion. And sure enough, people started to come up and said, I remember your dad. Hmm. And so he took a video camera with him to many of these reunions. I think it was 10 or 15 years he went and recorded these guys telling their stories and their wives as well. So I just, I cannot tell you how appreciative I am of his willingness, not as a filmmaker, 
but just to document these people before, you know, they were gone. Most of them are not with us anymore. And so that ended up becoming invaluable footage for your work. Absolutely. I thought, oh, man, this is great. I, You know, fortunately, we have uh, Whitney Hess over at Nine. She does restoration work. And so not only on the archival footage of, you know, World War II, but she worked on these as well to kind of try to get the sound a little better and the visuals a little better. And um, that just, I think, adds a, a real emotional punch to the film. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Kara. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. We're talking about the illustrious history of the USS St. Louis. There have been seven different iterations of this ship. And my guest today is Kara Vanninger. She's a producer for 9PBS and the producer and writer of the new film USS St. Louis, Centuries of Service. You can watch that on PBS or stream it on their website. And Kara, we've been talking about the the various iterations of this ship. Lucky Lou did amazing things in World War II. That leads us to the present day. How did we end up with a another USS St. Louis after so much time? That's a great question, and that's something I did ask when I went to um, Naval History and Heritage Command uh, in Washington, D.C. I I said, how do you decide? And and they said, well, you know, there, and this is in the film, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things that are taken into consideration, but one of them is legacy. Mm-hmm. If, a, if a city or a state has a wonderful legacy in the Navy, um, other ships that have sailed under that name, they, they might reassign it, you know, uh, hmm. at certain points. Also, they want to give attention to cities that don't have naval bases. So things, you know, St. Louis is landlocked. So that, you know, that's one way for them to raise awareness around the U.S. Navy as well. It was interesting to learn about how this community connection is so important to them. It's not just that we think of this as our ship because it has our name. They really kind of think of this as, as we're the community that's meant to adopt this ship in a way. Absolutely. And the morale is so important, especially when you're out to sea for months or however long you're out for. Morale is so huge. And to know that a city that you have visited, that you know people in, they're cheering for you. They're sending you letters. They're encouraging you. That That is huge for morale for a lot of sailors. So I'm glad you mentioned the visit because the crew from this new ship did visit St. Louis in 2019. There was a bunch of ship-related festivities. Uh, Mark Sunlove of the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum uh, told you all about what happened here at Navy Week. They came here to Soldiers Memorial uh, to unveil that crest, you know, and they brought a large number of the, the young crew members. And so it's not just the, you know, the upper brass. The ship sponsor, Barbara Taylor, and her committee ensured that uh, those sailors saw a lot of St. Louis. We really did our best to show them our city and took them out to eat at our favorite restaurants. And of course, there were sports involved. We went to a hockey game. They saw a baseball game throughout the first pitch. 
And they would go visit schools and talk to kids and do a lot of different service projects. People were just so nice. When we went to Ted Drew's, 15, maybe 20 of us, and the person behind us put down his credit card and said, you know, thanks for all you do. I'd love to just buy it for all of you. And that is from the 9PBS film, USS St. Louis, Centuries of Service. Now, that last voice we heard there, talking about the trip to Ted Drew's, that's the ship's sponsor, Barbara Broadhurst-Taylor. The ship's sponsor, this is something I learned about in this film. What a unique and interesting role. We see her break the, the ceremonial champagne bottle to christen this ship. We've probably all seen footage of, of this happening to ships. This role goes so far beyond that. What is a sponsor's meant to do for a ship like this? Yes, so they are really meant to give it a heart. They are, it's a lifelong commitment. They are considered part of the crew. And so she is meant to kind of imbue the ship with her, you know, goodwill and her, her own character. And it's a really interesting sort of, almost like a godmother role to kind of, look after and make sure the crew is is taken care of and happy. It was interesting, the, the woman who played this role for the Lucky Lou uh, back in the 1940s, this had been almost like a debutante, came out of the Veiled Prophet Ball. Um, and But she ended up playing this role for years. This wasn't just a, a couple of year commitment during wartime. I mean, this goes on for decades. Absolutely, all the way to, well, several different ends. One was handing it over to the Brazilian Navy. She was there when that happened um, eventually. and. And also, when the ship's wheel was uh, dedicated at the museum, she was there, too. Hmm. So. so Barbara Broadhurst-Taylor is taking on a lifelong role here. Absolutely. And she's so enthusiastic. She does seem like she's yeah. really a perfect person perfect. for this job. Her, her father was a general, is that right? In the Air Force, yes. Okay. Yes. So this new ship, uh, this is a Freedom-class littoral combat ship. Um, what is it? What is its role in the U.S. Navy? Well, it has it has many, but it I guess the one thing to really highlight is that it can operate close to shore and out in the open ocean. So um, it it is set up to combat mines, so uh, finding them and de- defusing them. Uh, along with uh, diplomatic missions and other things. So. so it's got some real dexterity with what it can do. Absolutely. It's a very agile ship, very fast. So. Seems like this is more in line with modern warfare. You you aren't just parked there having big battles. You're zipping in and, and zipping out. Right. It's interesting to learn there's only 40 to 50 sailors total on the ship. That seems yeah. lower than I might expect. Yes. Everything is very, uh, it's highly, um, highly technical. It's, it's able to... Um, the the one of the architect or the builders talked about it like it's an iPhone designers mm-hmm. I should say it's almost this very um, maneuverable ship and so the crew has probably each at least three different jobs on the ship because it can change so often. It can change its mission. So, so again, they can be very fleet. Right. So you feature a number of these crew members that are on this new USS St. Louis. And I love this moment where these sailors share a few striking things about serving at sea on this ship. The most exciting thing about being out to sea for me is all of the different evolutions and drills that we get to do when we're out on the water. Getting the opportunity to drive the ship by hand, which is something specific to LCS that officers get to do. Uh, the flight operations, the small boat operations, mine hunting drills. The sheer amount of cleaning that we do every single day. 
My favorite thing is going out at night, going out to the flight deck or the forecastle and seeing the sky open up because there is no light pollution and it's absolutely mesmerizing. And those are some of the sailors on the new USS St. Louis. Kara, it was so great to hear from these sailors and get this modern perspective. I understand it was not easy to get those interviews. We can blame COVID-19 for that. Like, we should just blame it for everything. Uh, How were you able to get those interviews even in the middle of a pandemic? Well, the United States Navy was so collaborative on this. And I said, I really want to have crew speaking and giving their experiences. And so I sent them questions. They set up their cameras and found people. You know, I asked for, because I know the Navy is full of uh, diverse service people. I said, please give me, you know, some great diversity. We want to hear everybody's voice. We want to see the people that are serving our country on this ship. And and they were amazing. They set it up, asked the questions, and sent me the files. And I was like, yes. <laughs> you must have been terrified to open those files. Like, well, am I going to get this grainy thing? It seems like maybe you shouldn't have. These are some really tech-savvy sailors. Yes. And, you know, the United States Navy, too, has so much footage that is in the public domain. And they were willing to share a lot of that with me, which was so helpful because it gave this sense of, you know, adventure, of duty, of what these servicemen and women go through um, when they're out to sea. And that, I think, was really important to show audiences what what they're actually doing, all these amazing jobs. So there's really nothing missing in this film. It's not like we're thinking, oh, this is the Zoom version of a film. She had to make this during a pandemic, so she just worked with what she had. But I'm wondering, were you able to do anything in person? Or was this all things that where you were working with people remotely and then putting it together? I did actually travel to uh, Washington, D.C. and Annapolis to get some interviews, to get the Naval Academy which I think did add, it it gives you that feeling of sort of being there. And Mm -hmm. um, so that was really exciting. And being able to visit a few of the different museums and the people who ran them, because of course, they're all veterans with illustrious careers. And so being able to talk to them really kind of made me feel like I was part of, I was in part of that, that history. And so that was helpful. So, Kara, something I have to ask about, um, you didn't just write and produce this film, you also narrate it. How unusual is that, that the, the producer and writer ends up playing that role as well? Well, in a, a long-form documentary like this, it, it is rare, um, especially for, for women. And so I'm really grateful that Nine gave me the, the chance to do it. I think that, you know, it doesn't work every time for every documentary, but It helped me as I was writing the script and then voicing the script. It kind of all came together and um, helped me to sort of tell the story the way I was feeling it as I was creating it. Hmm. So when you mentioned feeling, I guess my feeling coming away from this film, you know, I was so fascinated by this history and, and there was just some great footage, so much to learn. But really the idea that these ships have souls, that they're not just pieces of machinery, the way that the the men and women who live on them feel about them is almost like this is a comrade. Is that something that that sort of was the leitmotif running through what you were working on? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite quotes in the film, too, is, um, you know, those of us who have served on warships, you know, we have a hard time seeing them as pieces of steel. We believe they have souls. And Paul Stilwell, he's an author and historian and veteran himself. He said that. And um, that really that really did bring to life the ships themselves for me, because, of course, they are the homes for the crews, which are people with souls and hearts. And when they're all brought together, 
there's nothing that can break the bond of a shipmate. And the ship is what unites them. Mm-hmm. And boy, after watching this film, you can see why the men who served on the Lucky Lou, it was important to them to try to preserve this. Now, obviously, that didn't work. But you get the sense of just how these, what these ships mean to people. You have to hope down the road this USS St. Louis not only has a long, illustrious history, but that maybe someday this is the one that could turn into a museum. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's such interesting history, and I, I enjoyed this film so much. So, Kara Vanninger, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Evie Hemphill, with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.